News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Have you spent any time in the metaverse? If right now you're thinking, well, what is the metaverse? Then we have a story for you because you know what? In some ways, we're kind of already living in the metaverse. Now, our next guest is going to tell us all about that. Megan Garber is a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine and has written all about this. Good morning, Megan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. First of all, how do you define the metaverse? Well, there are lots of different definitions to use, but the one I use is simply this notion that entertainment can be made immersive. So, you know, I often think about the headsets that you put on to access virtual reality, augmented reality, that kind of thing. And often what the metaverse entails is this notion that you can essentially live within your entertainment, live within illusions that someone else has created for you. And just like you said, I think we don't actually need the headsets to access that world. I think we actually are in a lot of ways living within that sense of immersive entertainment. Do you have some examples of that? What kind of shows would you mean? Oh, sure. So I think so one of the one of the um, things that will often come up in dystopias, for example, um, is something like the feelies in Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, this notion of television that can that you can feel itself. And I think that we actually have a version of that. Now we have news that is often filtered through entertainment, through dramas, through comedies, um, and, you know, video games, a lot of examples, but effectively this notion that the lines between entertainment and the real world of hard facts and hard histories is becoming blurred. Right. Because some of these shows too, that you're talking about, they're, they're, they're based on history, right? So we tend to think they're real, but they're not. Exactly right. And often what will happen is very recent history will get metabolized effectively as a drama. You might look at a show like The Crown, for example, which, you know, stars characters who are still alive, who are still living their lives. The Crown is effectively a biopic, but it is about history that is in many ways still happening. And so I think that's a great example of of this blurring where what is history and what is the dramatization of history? And that line gets very blurry very easily. Right. Because shows that, you know, we believe those and then people think that is that is actually what it is. Right. And then they're always shocked to find out that there's actually more to that story than what they saw on TV. (laughs) And I found myself feeling like that, too, where I watch something like The Crown and sometimes I will Google and try to find out if the scene that I just watched as a semi-history actually did happen. And it can be very hard to determine whether it did happen or not. So you're left, I think, as a viewer with a little bit of a um, an uncertainty about what is actually history and what is an invention meant to tell a good story. And how much of a role does social media play in all this? I think social media plays a big role. One of the the things I'm trying to argue with with my story is that social media kind of um, blurs the distinction between not just entertainment and everything else, but also between human beings and characters. I think there is a way that social media encourages us to see each other not as fully human, you know, complex and deserving of empathy, but instead as characters in this ongoing grand show. And I've certainly experienced that myself as a user of social media. I've felt that um, sometimes when people will respond to something I say, it doesn't feel often like they are responding 
to someone they see as fully real. They're responding to, you know, the trope of a journalist, um, you know, a right. character in general. Yep. Has it made us, do you think, Megan, I don't know, more difficult or more challenging for some people to just face like reality as it is because of all of this other stuff that makes it feel like that's real and what is what, what's actually happening to them is not real? I think so very much. Um, you might look at something like the term crisis actor, for example, which is often um, summoned to explain away news stories um, when there's a mass shooting, right. for example. There will always be a contingent of people that say, oh, that didn't actually happen. This is just a performance. This is fake. And you see that idea often playing out in conspiracy theories in general, where the, the logic of entertainment and theater will be used to explain away a tragedy that people probably don't want to face as, as a real thing that has happened. It's almost like people want to live in some kind of virtual world because if they're there, I, I saw this recently with the DeMar Hamlin situation too, right? People yeah. believing that that wasn't really him waving at the crowd. And, all, and I thought, why, what is the point of making up <laughs> stuff about that? I don't understand. Exactly. And I don't fully either, but I would say that I think there is something very reassuring about this idea of, oh, it's just fake. You know, it means that you don't have to accept things as they are. And the things in question are often very hard to to think about and to accept. And so, um, yeah, it's it's a lot easier to simply say, Hmm. well, I don't have to think about that. I don't have to pay attention to that because it's not real. It did not happen in the world. It's simply a fabrication. Okay, that makes sense. So what you're saying is that perhaps for some people, what's happening in the world is too overwhelming. I think so very much. And that's a theme, too, in conspiracy um, theory culture, essentially, where um, often the conspiracy itself will be a, um, a reaction to something that is really hard in the world, um, you know, whatever it might be. And the conspiracy offers um, a, a kind of coherence to the world. It offers a narrative. It offers the reassurance that the world can be made uh, legible in a lot of right. ways. And, it, and there is something very reassuring about that. It offers a solution to them. Mm, yes, exactly. So, Megan, what happens when you write about this? Well, one of the things that actually um, impelled the story itself was, in fact, some of the hate mail that I get. That's what I thought. Exactly. Yep. Um, And and, and just the utter um, just I mean, I will say the cruelty of some of it, you know, that that people would decide to send these horrible messages to someone that they don't know who's, you know, who wrote, wrote something that they don't like, that they don't agree with. And one of the things that I noticed was when I replied to those emails um, and said, you know, could you explain a little bit more why I am such a terrible person? Um, And when I did that, they would sometimes act surprised and then would be so much nicer. And sometimes we would actually have a conversation. And just that idea that they came into the interaction, A, feeling entitled to send that email in the first place, that I would assume they would not feel entitled to say to me in person. Um, But the fact that they really did seem shocked that there was a human person on the other end of of their message, um, I found just very resonant. And it's something that stuck with me for a long time and really was kind of the the emotional foundation of, of, of this piece. Right. I could see how social media is really, you know, this is the Instagram thing, right? Where we're putting out one thing in the world when we find out it's not that, it's not as we see people are, oh, oh, okay, that's not what it is. And they become completely different people. I've had the same thing happen to me. <laughs> yes, 
No, exactly. I think that's a very common um, phenomenon among among journalists and many other people, too, where it's so easy, I think, just to see each other not as people, but as tropes, effectively. You know, the same idea of, of the crisis actors, but applied to other people in the world where there is kind of a coherence to say to yourself, well, that person is a journalist and they write things or say things I don't like, therefore... They are just a character. And, and there is, I, I very much recognize something very assuring about that. But then to have that disrupted by the character actually writing back to you and saying, yeah. actually, no, I, I am real. I'm sorry to tell you. It's so fascinating. It would be very disconcerting. Yeah. yeah. You use the word character. That's such a good way to put it because now when you see people videotaping everything too, right, they're recording everything and it almost makes everybody yeah. a character in some reality show. Exactly right. I think that's so true. And I would say, too, that we are, I think, conditioned to understand that people that we see through screens, you know, usually those are fictional people. Usually those are people in movies who are inventions or, you know, sitcoms, TV shows, that kind of thing. And one of the challenges of this moment is to sort of reorient our thinking um, to the fact that, no, also the people that we experience through screens are real, (laughs) whether it's reality shows, whether it's Instagram, any of those. Oh, Megan, so fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's Megan Garber, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic magazine. She's been writing about the metaverse as as if we were already in it. And she makes some excellent points. And, you know, as she was talking, I was thinking back to, was it last week, the week before, when basketball superstar LeBron James broke the all-time scoring record? And I don't know if you saw the picture of that lot, the shot that he took at the moment that he was about to break the record. And it was a shot of him. And then in the background, it was everybody, you know, in the crowd. And every single person except for one was holding up a camera, recording the situation. And I remember thinking at that moment, well, how many of them were actually enjoying the moment, like watching it with their own eyes? They weren't. They were all watching it through their screens, except for that one person. It was an older gentleman sitting in the front row. I found out later that was um, Phil Knight, the CEO, you know, the old CEO of, of Nike, who was just sitting there, no phone, no nothing, enjoying it in person. But I thought every other person is just watching it through their phones, not being there in the moment to experience history. No, no, they have to record it because that's how they know they were actually there for such an important moment. So Megan's um, theory there is is really fascinating. Find a way in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. In a little more than 100 days since Ken Sim took over as mayor in Vancouver, there's a lot to talk about. And sure, some federal leaders think Vancouver is, quote, hell on earth. Well, what about revitalizing different neighborhoods? What about boosting mental health supports? Well, to talk about all that and more, we are joined now by Mayor Ken Sim. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Simi. Thanks for having me this morning. How does it feel to have that 100 days done? Um, You know, it felt like three days and it felt like 300. Uh, <laughs> there, there was a lot going on, but it, it, it was great. When you look at that now, are, is there something you're most proud of doing? Like the, what, what do you think you got the done that you're most proud of in that hundred days? Um, well, it, it's not just me. Um, I, I want to be very clear. We have an amazing team of counselors, park board and school board, um, elected officials and everyone at the city. And so I think the greatest thing was just getting to know everyone and working together and dealing with a lot of the challenges that we have in our city. Is the job what you thought it would be at this point? Um, it, you know, that's really hard to answer. Uh, 
you know, we had a, I guess at the end of the day, you can mail it in or you can really lean into it. And we chose to lean into it because, you know, at the end of the day, and I, I say this incredibly respectfully, it was never about being mayor of the city or a stepping stone to become a premier or prime minister. We just wanted to turn our city, um, well, move it in a different positive direction. And so uh, it's been, you know, uh, effectively you know, I'd like to say 24-7, but it's really, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night, seven days a week. And, um, you know, there's just so much we can do in our city. So it's, uh, from that perspective, I guess it is what we thought it would be because we, you know, we choose to be there. Yeah, you talked a lot about returning kind of to a, a sense of optimism with all the challenges that the city is facing right now. How, how do you do that? How have you found that? Well, I, I think part of it is just having uh, authentic conversations with people and letting people know where we stand and, um, um, you know, painting a vision of how Vancouver can be the best city on the planet again and acknowledging our challenges. And we, we do have a lot of challenges, but at the end of the day, there are, you know, there are opportunities in disguise. And, um, you know, it's uh, I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, if, if we can paint the picture that Vancouver is a great place full of opportunity and we can be bold and we can be the best place on the planet, it, it really starts to change the conversation. Can we be bold? Absolutely. Um, you know, there, there's so many places to be bold. For example, and I know I'm going to get my knuckles wrapped on this, but I, I just think of, let's say, Gastown for uh, a second. Um, actually, you know what, why don't we start on um, a very pressing issue, you know, the, the challenges that we have in the downtown east side and surrounding communities, um, because, you know, I, I, I guess we, we can talk about swagger and fun all we want, but we do have a humanitarian crisis going on there. Um, so I'd like to chat about that first. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think being bold and authentic, you know, when I was inaugurated, when we were inaugurated on November 7th, the first thing we did is we were incredibly honest with everyone and we said, look, uh, Vancouver alone cannot solve this challenge. We humble, humbly need help from the province and the federal government. And three days later, the provincial government, they stepped up and they said they're going to uh, oversee all the challenges that we have there, uh, which was a significant change because, uh you know, whenever you're doing anything, be it in any organization, if you have more than two people or two groups accountable for something, no one's accountable. And so that one structural change um, uh, allows us to be bold and really uh, tackle the challenge from a different perspective. Uh, on the fun side, uh, I, I think of, let's say, Gastown or the Granville Entertainment District in Gastown. And I, this is where I'm going to get my knuckles wrapped. Um, w- w- the the Gastown BIA they're thinking of they they asked for seven um, uh, car free days uh, like during a summer and they got turned down and um, my uh, response uh, to this was why are we thinking um, so small why don't we you know um, experiment test it um, over a summer and then actually um, have car-free uh, days uh, like every single day between uh, the May long weekend and the Labor Day long weekend. Um, you know, so we create this amazing um, place where people can meet and we have uh, street vendors and restaurants and art and nightlife and it creates a vibe in our city. Uh, that, that's thinking bold. Okay, why, why would you say you were going to get your knuckles wrapped over that? Because I think a lot of people will go, well, that sounds like fun. 
You know, I, I think um, some individuals, and rightfully so, um, they they um, they're looking um, at the the challenges of that neighborhood. And you know, if we shut it down, you know, maybe you know, there's um, you know, we still have the challenges that we have around the downtown east side, the humanitarian crisis going on there, and people, uh, you know, vulnerable individuals that need a lot of help. Um, but I think we have to be bold and look beyond that. And do we need to um, address those challenges? Absolutely. But let's think of a, an amazing future state um, that works for everyone and get there as opposed to thinking about, you know, the, the reasons why we can't do something. How do you balance the ter- stuff in terms of, well, that's a provincial jurisdiction versus that's a city jurisdiction? Like you're getting involved in providing more mental health supports. And some people would argue, well, that's a provincial jurisdiction. At the same time, you know, you wanted to shut down the renter's office because you said that's being served by the province. So where is that line? Well, you know, I, I wish it was super simple, but you, once again, it goes uh, to being bold and you have to pick your spots. And so, like I said, we have a humanitarian crisis. We have been talking about it for, like, it seems like forever, but uh, about 30, 40 years. And we had to do something differently or nothing would have changed. And so we made the commitment. We said, okay, you know, regardless if this is a provincial jurisdiction or not, we have to try something differently. And if we prove out the, the case for it and it works, then we can go back to the province and show them how this is actually a great investment, not just for Vancouver, but throughout all the different cities that are uh, dealing that are dealing with these challenges. Uh, but let's get there first. When it comes to the renter's office, uh, that was uh, an empathetic uh, uh, operational decision. And so, to give you context, you know, in the media, um, it just comes out as we cut the renter's office. Well, what we actually did is we set up a group um, for success. Uh, we gave them a 13-year operating lease at basically $10 a year. Uh, we put in $1.2 million of leasehold improvements. Uh, they were asking for $500,000 in funding. We gave them $750,000 in funding. And all we said is, look, um, you know, the way it's currently structured, uh, there's a duplication of effort. And to give you context, uh, that renter's office was getting about a call a day. And so, um, you know, uh, we dealt with the situation where we made sure that they were set up for success. And over the long term, you know, uh, the prudent decision, um, both from an operating perspective, but also from a financial perspective, would be to um, have the um, other organizations that are already doing the work um, continue to do the work. So we really have to pick our spots um, where we're going to be bold and go outside of uh, our lines. How would you describe your leadership style? For instance, I'm thinking about this morning where there's expected to be snow in Vancouver. And, and you know, we always get complaints. I'm sure you do always get complaints about, you know, snow plows and plowing and all that. Are you the kind of person, the kind of leader who phones up and says, hey, are we making sure that we're good on this one? Like, I don't want to get complaints about snow plows and plowing. Yeah, I, look, I, I'm a servant leader. And I truly believe that we have amazing people at the city of Vancouver, our city manager, the entire leadership team is uh, phenomenal. Um, It's my job to make sure that they have, uh, you know, they understand where we want to, where the vision is. And I think we've been pretty clear where we want to take our city. Um, And then we make sure that they have the resources. So that conversation actually came up the first day in office because like every single other Vancouver, right, we can see this from a mile away. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah, you know, we had this conversation literally on October 17th or 18th. uh, And and our city, you know, the city manager and and the entire crew, uh, they're absolutely phenomenal. They work on it uh, all the time. They think about it all year round. 
But I, I want to um, give uh, the city context here. We have limited resources. And so we could have amazing uh, service levels where we literally have streets plowed uh, and they're cleared every single minute of the day when it snows. We would just have to increase property taxes to an insane number. And so we, we have to you know, be prudent with our fiscal resources and realize that will it be perfect? Absolutely not. But uh, uh, as soon as the snow happens, we have a plan to um, plow all our main arterial roads. And I think 16 of the um, uh, most highly used uh, um, bike paths and pedestrian walkways and what have you. So the, there is actually a pretty uh, robust plan um, uh, to deal with the, the snow plowing. You just, but you know, as being mayor of Vancouver, you just know that's going to come up at some point, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we'll, we'll take the shots. And that's where authenticity comes in. We just tell, uh, we share with people, um, the, you know, what we have to deal with and, um, you know, the limited resources we have. And so we, there's a balance between affordability, um, you know, um, you know uh, reducing expenses with uh, service levels and yeah. um we, we share with the city, this is the call we're making. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Um, but I think, uh, you know, for the most part, um, you know, you, once you uh, get past the frustrations of, uh, you know, the mobility may be a little limited for a day or two, I think people would appreciate that um, because the trade-off would be a significant increase in property taxes that actually uh, affect, uh, you know, the cost of everything we buy in the city because uh, vendors, uh, businesses have to pass it on to their consumers as well. And, you know, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Well, before I let you go then, and you brought up property taxes there, I have to ask you, we're seeing all these headlines from other communities and huge property tax increases. What is Vancouver facing? Uh, yeah, we're still going through those numbers right now. But once again, um, clear like to be incredibly transparent. We're dealing with... Um, you know, the same uh, challenges all the municipalities are dealing with, uh, be it um, incredibly high inflation and increasing labor costs. Uh, you add to that, uh, we were left with an empty reserve fund um, um, during the pandemic. And we have a half billion dollar a year infrastructure deficit that was neglected. Um, you know, um, um, I, look, I, we're not trying to litigate the past year. And um, previous, uh, you know, administrations have not been investing in capital replacement. And that's a significant issue because, you know, I, I, I don't know how I put this, but, you know, if we don't deal with this, you know, there could be a situation where some of the toilets or a lot of the toilets in the city do not flush in 20 years. And so I think bringing that transparency and just having those real conversations with the residents of Vancouver so they understand um, why we're doing what we're doing. Um, you know, I, I think is, you know, the first step in, um, you know, um, making the city a better place and people understanding uh, why their elected officials do what they do. All right, well, I look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so much for being on. Great. Thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. This year, this week, I should say, marks the one-year anniversary of the full-scale war in Ukraine. And Canada continues to support Ukraine. And in fact, the defense minister is in Vancouver this week to meet with Ukrainian-Canadian community leaders. And for more on that, we're joined now by Anita Anand, who's Canada's national defense minister. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. How would you describe Canada's efforts in Ukraine at this point? Canada has since the beginning of the further invasion of Ukraine by Russia, stood shoulder to shoulder with 
Ukraine with military aid, with humanitarian aid, and with economic aid. And in fact, we've put on the table over $1 billion of military aid, ranging from M777s, that's heavy artillery, uh, to armored vehicles, to cameras for drones, to winter clothing, to fragmentation vests. It's really a comprehensive effort to provide Ukraine with the equipment and material that it is requesting and that it needs to fight and win this unjustifiable war. We have seen uh, the president of Ukraine, you know, meeting with people like U.S. President Joe Biden this week and efforts to really, you know, get even more equipment uh, to Ukraine. Has Canada been asked to do more? We as allies stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine and indeed are continuing to commit to additional aid for Ukraine. And certainly military aid is part of the package that we are considering. Recently, we sent four Leopard 2A4 tanks to Poland where Ukrainian soldiers are being trained. Those tanks will be used on the battlefield in Ukraine. So that is the type of aid that we're providing. We listen and hear Ukraine's specific requests. We put on the table the aid that they are requesting, including training on that aid and spare parts and sustainment is also part of the effort that Canada makes because we can't have the equipment that we're sending uh, fall short on the battlefield itself. Uh, So we're really looking at comprehensive long-term aid. Now, I understand you're also going to be meeting with some community leaders. Uh, Yes, most definitely. Um, The Vancouver community, the British Columbia community, has been extremely welcoming to Ukrainians who are are seeking refuge in our country. And I met with a number of those uh, Ukrainians and the families where they're staying yesterday. And I will say a large thank you uh, to British Columbians for the welcoming uh, nature and their work to have uh, a hospitable environment for newcomers to this community. Uh, can we also talk a little bit as well about some of the other places that you're visiting in Vancouver? I understand you went to C-SPAN shipyards or you're going to be going there. There's work being done there. Is that right for, for equipment? Most definitely. C-SPAN is a significant economic and job creation engine. According to a recent study, in fact, uh, between 2012 and 2020. About $2.6 billion to Canada's GDP uh, through activities under the National Shipbuilding Strategy. So I'm very much looking forward uh, to meeting with C-SPAN today, uh, talking about how it's growing its workforce to a team of thousands of workers, from engineers to naval architects, procurement specialists. This will be part of our conversation today. Now, equipment has been a huge issue, hasn't it, for uh, the Canadian forces? I mean, that's is that an ongoing challenge, especially when it comes to things like fighter jets? Well, it was great to be able to confirm that we will be purchasing 88 F-35s for the Canadian Armed Forces, and we will continue to do what is necessary to capitalize the armed forces to make sure they have the equipment they need to keep Canadians safe. We are raising defense spending by 70% uh, over the nine-year period starting in 2017. We invested an additional $8 billion in new defense spending in our last year's budget. And we're also making significant investment in NATO's eastern flank where we need the enhanced board presence 
uh, battle group in Latvia. And then finally, and very importantly, we're investing nearly $40 billion to modernize NORAD to keep Canadians and North Americans safe. And we saw the importance of protecting Canadians and protecting Canadian skies when NORAD shot down that cylindrical object over at central Yukon uh, just last week. I was going to ask you about that. Yes. Yeah, so we, 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 I know that everybody was kind of riveted by that story. Like, have we been able to find that object? Do we know what it was? The terrain was extremely rugged, very remote, heavy snowfall, very cold temperatures. And ultimately, after days and days of searching from dawn till dusk, the RCMP decided to call off the search uh, for the suspected balloon. Um, but there is the data analysis that is still ongoing on, in terms of the uh, suspected balloon that went down off of the coast of the United States around the area of Myrtle Beach. Uh, so we are coordinating with our U.S. partners and with NORAD regarding any data that is collected. Has there been anything else like that since then? I mean, it just seemed like in the matter of a week there were all these objects. And are you, there's, there's none now? Well, this is the work that NORAD does every day to keep Canadian skies and uh, North American skies safe. And part of our goal is to make sure that we're continually upgrading our radar systems uh, to ensure that we do capture any threats to our skies. And that is the work that we'll continue to do to keep Canadians safe. Uh, But rest assured, uh, NORAD is always monitoring our skies. That is the key objective of NORAD since it was formed 40 years ago. Had there ever been another object like that detected or was this a new situation? Well, the Canadian Armed Forces um, did detect objects in the 1990s. Um, But as I said, we are always monitoring our skies and our territory for any foreign threats. This is the work of the Canadian Armed Forces to protect and defend our country, uh, not only domestically, but internationally in conjunction with our allies. And so, as I said, uh, we'll continue to do this work. We'll continue to do what is necessary to keep Canadians safe, uh, no matter where that threat may arise. Can you also talk a little bit about the relationship with the United States? And I know that there was some criticism at the time that saying, oh, we, you know, it was the Americans that shot this down. But how does that process work so people understand? Oh, that's a great question. So NORAD is the world's only binational command. That means that both Canada and the United States have capabilities as part of NORAD. And in the particular shooting down of the suspected balloon over Yukon, that was a NORAD activity. Prime Minister Trudeau gave the permission to shoot the object down over Canadian skies. Ultimately, an American aircraft did take the shot, but the command was whoever has the best shot should take it, and both Canadian and American aircraft were in the air. But as I said, this was a NORAD operation. This was a joint operation, and we had both Canadian and American aircraft in the air at the same time to undertake the protection of our spawn together. Well, Minister Anand, thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much. Take good care.